Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey guys, welcome back to Where Should I Invest with Sarah Larby. And today we are going to hear from Danielle Chason. Danielle is a full-time flipper and she flips properties in the GTA. And Danielle is actually going to be speaking at our next SoWrite event, which is June 19th. And if you guys are interested in coming to SoWrite Southern Ontario Real Estate Investing Training Club and hearing Danielle speak more on flipping and her processes, you can go on Eventbrite and just type in SoWrite, S-O space R-E-I-T club, and you can register on there. And you can also find us on Facebook if you just search SoWrite. I wanted to just give you guys a little bit of an update on what I've been up to. So the cottage I purchased in April, everything is ready to go and we are starting to rent it out. So really awesome. I um, put it on Airbnb and it is also on uh, another rental site and we're getting some good traction. So really awesome to see the whole project coming together and it was really one of those things we weren't really sure what was going to come out of it, if people are going to be interested and if we were going to make much money on it, but it uh, definitely looks promising. We we did well. It looks good. Turned it into a four bedroom, had some renovations done. I ended up actually sending my contractors from Brantford up there for eight days to put it together and get it up to par. So and then on top of that, I'm currently in the flipping process on the Brantford house that we bought for 220,000. Our contractors are working, kitchen went in today. So I think we're gonna be ready to sell that starting the first week of July. That's what we're hoping for. So really exciting. Um, if you guys are interested in seeing more of the progress, you can always add me on Instagram. I do have Instagram now. Um, surprisingly, <laughs> I was always not a very big social media person, but now I do have it. So, and it's actually kind of fun. And my handle is Sarah Larby84. If you guys wanted to take a look and see our progress. So, if you guys are interested in coming to So Right, please register. If you're you have not been yet and you want to come as my free guest, send me an email and I will get you added on the free guest list for your first time. The other thing is we do take the summers off, so we resume again September 5th. That will be our student rental meeting, and we're going to talk about student rentals and how they can be successful and all that good stuff. So let's get on with our interview, and if you guys could just take a moment and let me know what you think of the show. You can add a rating, you can add a review, and you can also email me. So if you guys want to reach out to me directly, you can reach out to me at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at sarahlarby.com, or you can go to my website and you can go to the contacts me page, which is sarahlarby.com. All right, cool. So let's get on with our interview with Danielle Chason. Hey, Danielle, how are you? I'm great, Sarah. How are you? 
Very good. Very good. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Danielle and I met at the So Right Club that I host monthly, and Danielle has been a very active contributor and presenter as well, and has a lot of knowledge on many different things real estate related, and Danielle's forte is flipping. So we're going to talk about flipping today. I'm really excited about that. So Danielle, just out of curiosity for you, how and why did you decide to start investing in real estate? Well, before we get started, Sarah, I just want to say thank you to you for having me on your podcast. I just wanted to put a shout out there. I think it's great what you're doing with this podcast and helping other investors give them some guidance in real estate because education is key when it comes to investing in real estate. So I think what you're doing is fantastic. I just want to say thank you from me because I enjoy them and I'm sure your listeners do as well. And I'm very honored that you've asked me to come on the show. So thank you for this. Yeah, so the question was, why did I decide to start investing in real estate? Well, I guess the obvious answer would be because anybody who, well, not anybody, but most of the 1% have made their millions in real estate. So obviously, they're on to something that the rest of us kind of knows there. And so that, you know, the obvious question, the obvious answer. However, having said that, I've always been drawn to real estate. And there's a few things that I like about investing in real estate. One, it's asset-based lending. So the nice thing about real estate is that I can purchase a piece of real estate. Once I get some equity in it, I can borrow other people's money and reinvest that. I can also defer taxes. There's many ways of making money in real estate, which gives me more control. If you start investing in stocks, you don't really have a whole lot of control. You don't have control over the business that you're investing in. But when you invest in real estate, you do have control over the asset that you own. So that's, for me, I'm a bit of a control freak and I like to be able to be creative as well. So, you know, you have different exit strategies in real estate. So if the market starts taking a dip, you need to start moving things around. Again, it's a control thing and just, you know, just having different exit strategies. I mean, if, if I flip a property and the market takes a dip, then I can rent it. I can sell it. I can refinance it. There's a bunch of different things that I can do. So, you know, when I looked at it as doing this as a career, it just made a whole lot of sense to me. It's a fun game. Real estate is a game to me and I love playing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That control piece is the reason that I decided to also buy real estate rather than put my money in the stock market. So 100% agree with you there. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Danielle, just out of curiosity, can you tell me about your first property that you bought? Well, first property that I bought, again, being that creative, having that creativity with real estate, I ended up buying two properties at the same time. So my first property was actually two and I did it with a partner. So what happened was I had the money and she had the credit. And so what we ended up doing is we bought two properties. We closed within a week of each other. And we ended up putting 5% down on two properties as first time home buyers. And so by doing this, we were able to double what we bought as opposed to at 5% as opposed to buying one at 5% and one at 20. And so we were able to get two properties. And when we bought them, I wanted to make sure that I had in-law suites that we could rent out. So I was 27 years old. I was a little late getting into the game. And that's what we did. So one of the reasons why I wanted two properties too is that if the partnership fell apart and this was our deal, if things went south, 
she would take one house, I would take the other, and no harm, no foul. So we'd kind of predetermined which house was mine, which was hers. We decided to live in one and rent out the other. But we had basement suites in both, so that if something happened that I needed to, and I was pregnant, by the way, so it was a little bit scary for me because I wasn't sure, you know, what would happen if I didn't get the rent that I thought I would get, if I wasn't able to, you know, afford the mortgage on my own. That's why we had the apartment suite in the basement. So that was to help alleviate any of the mortgage. So that was a great way, you know, just having that buffer to supplement our income. But that's basically how we did it. So when we did it that way, we were able to take the money we were paying in rent and put it into a mortgage in one house and the other house took care of itself with renting the upstairs and the downstairs separately. So, so that's how we did it. And then, and then consequently, because I was, I, got, I was pregnant and then she ended up getting pregnant, we decided to split and that's what we did. So that, that was my first real estate endeavor, which by the way, I still own both. Oh, I own one property, but we both, she still has the other. Okay. We still have both those properties. It's a very good way to get in. And 27, by the way, that you started much, much earlier than I'm sure many people. So you definitely <laughs> didn't start late. <laughs> well, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that real estate has always kind of been intriguing to me. I, I think it is for most people. There's just something sexy about real estate that attracts people. You know, I'm not sure what the draw is exactly. I've never really pinpointed it myself. But real estate has always been kind of pulling and calling my name. And I remember being at the age 20 or 21 and thinking about becoming a realtor at that time. And somebody had told me, if you become a realtor, you're going to have to lie in order to sell houses. And that's just not my thing. So that kind of put a bad taste in my mouth. And I said, no way. And when I asked them, why am I going to have to lie? Because at the time, realtors really had a bad rap. They had a, you know, a bad a bad name, bad stigma, you know, where people would just realtors tell you anything to get the house sold kind of thing or not disclose information to you. And that's kind of what was explained to me at the time. Now we're talking 20 years ago. The real estate world has definitely changed since then. But anyway, that's why I didn't go into real estate back then. But I was all over it. I've always been attracted to real estate. So if we fast forward today and we look back when you were 27, what does your real estate portfolio consist of and what kind of experience or deals have you done throughout those years? So from the time I was 27, I got my first properties until today. When I got properties after 27, up until about four years ago, I got them with my, my partner at the time. And so what we did, I never got any real estate education. I did what most people do which is like, hey, I know what I'm doing now. I'm a landlord. I own a house and I got this. So I buy a house and it carries itself and I'm going to make money on the appreciation and they're going to pay down my mortgage and I'm going to build in some equity and I'm going to refinance after five years and that's what I'm going to do. But turns out there's way more things you can do in real estate. But that was my knowledge up until about four and a half years ago when I decided to dive into real estate and make this a career. So up until then, we bought several properties properties in different markets. So there was St. Catharines, Mississauga, Ottawa. We got some in Calgary and up north. So we did invest in several properties. We were smart enough where we had some, you know, my partner is a business owner. So we had some professional support, which a lot of new real estate investors don't have that or they don't reach out for that. So we had accounts and lawyers to lean on and get educated. So we did structure them properly where they did get put into a corporate name 
So we didn't expose ourselves personally. So reducing our personal liability. And, but then, you know, four years ago in August of 2013, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do this. And so that's when I started going to conferences, going to the States and educating myself, getting some coaches. And so I took two years off of just educating myself so that I could have a clear picture of what path I wanted to take. And at that point, that's when I decided I wanted to flip. Now, my partner owns construction company, so I thought at the time it made a lot of sense for me to take my construction background working in his office and take my passion for real estate and marry the two together. So that's how flipping came to be. Um, I put that together with the education with the organization that I got my coaching from who primarily did flips. So I put all these three pieces together and then started flipping. Very cool. It's a great story. So... Let's talk about flipping for a little bit. And I know that you did a great presentation at the Sorry Club on flipping. What are some things that we need to know? Well, flipping is a monster. <laughs> Let me tell you, there is a lot of moving parts when it comes to flipping. It's not as simple as marketing a product or service, selling it, and then, you know, managing your accounting. There's a lot of things going on when you're flipping. So you start with the marketing. You got to market for those properties, which means you got to get out there, start looking at properties, vetting them, running the numbers, which is key to your business because the money is made when you buy. So you got to get out there, you got to market. And then once you got a property, you got some numbers put together, you got to put your offer in. So then you're dealing with the acquisition component. There's the whole closing process. You got to deal with your financing. Now, once you get all of that put together, then you start the actual rehabbing part. So with the rehab, you're dealing with contractors, supplies, suppliers, you know, there's all kinds of different, you know, you're dealing with permits, you're dealing with the city, you're dealing with the ESA inspectors on the electrical side, there's all kinds of different stuff and whatever problems are in, in the property too, you have to deal with. And then after the rehab is completed, then there's the disposition. So then you got to put it for sale, clean it, stage it, sell it, then you got to wait once it's on the MLS, you got to wait. In our market here, we're really lucky because we don't have to wait that long, you know, a couple of weeks to sell the property. I'm not sure what the days on the market is right now for our area, but, you know, it's, it's still low considering days on market. But then you're looking at 30, 60, 90 day closing, depending on who your buyer is. Right. So from step one, which is marketing and acquisition, then financing, then rehab, then disposition until the time you close. Like those are like your four wheels that run, that move the flipping truck and you're the engine inside that's running the whole thing. So, you know, without any one of these wheels functioning properly, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So it is a monster. You need to have, you need to know every bit of your business. It is a little bit more intensive than most real estate investing strategies because there's just a lot more moving parts. So you have a lot of balls in the air at all times, right? Yes, absolutely. And you're doing this full-time? Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Okay. Full-time so, and not alone. I do have an assistant. There's, without my assistant, I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't be able to scale it, do what I'm doing, build processes and systems around my business without my assistant. So basically, I'm the visionary, the puppeteer in my business, and she executes a lot of what I have in my head. And so between her and, you know, my realtor, 
my professional team. I have a guy, I have an employee now, my carpenter, so he's my go-to guy. I do have sub-trades as well, contractors that I have. But without all of these people, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. There's just not enough time in a day to get it all done. Absolutely. How did you find your team? I'm a big proponent of making it as simple as possible. And then when you have a great team in place, things just get a lot easier and you're able to really work on the business rather than in the business. How did you find your team? Trial and error. So when you start building your team, it's no different than hiring an employee. So whether I'm dealing with subs or suppliers or a realtor or an assistant, it's like finding an employee. It's trial and error. So I mean, you know, I can hire a painter and he sounds great. and He looks great on paper, you know, on his resume. He talks like he knows what he's talking about. And then you put a roller in his hand and he makes a mess. You know, at the end of the day, you don't really know until people are executing. So it, it is trial and error. You do have, when I hire people, I do have a vetting process. There are certain things that I look at that I do that I'll just completely discount people. So if I'm hiring a contractor and he says he'll get back to me by a certain day and he doesn't, I don't want to deal with him because if he's not going to follow through on a simple promise that he's made to me, how's he going to follow through on delivering on the project? You know, so these are for me, red flags. And if there's two or three red flags, I just immediately drop them. You know, if they say one thing and then they start shifting and they start changing their minds or they start, Oh, well, I didn't say that, you know, those are red flags. Again, to me in this space, the contractor world, it is a bit of a, messy business and so you just have to be aware and pay attention to your gut the red flags don't ignore them if it's too good to be true dig a little deeper but every time I close on a project and I do a rehab I do now because I've had I've gone through this quite a few times but I have a rule of three so three quotes for everything so my assistant Karen will call maybe six to 10 contractors to come out and meet with me and quote. Out of the six to 10, maybe four or five might actually meet me on site. And then out of those guys, I get my three. There's a lot of time spent in order to get those people. But now that I have my number one, my number two contractors, I don't typically do that every time anymore. But having worked for my partner, in the construction field before and being in business, seeing as he was an owner, I had a business perspective and I did the hiring in that office. So what happened was, is I quickly realized that everybody has a timeline with you. So I, of all my contractors, I'm happy. I love working with all of them, but something may shift later in their business, maybe their business model, maybe in their personal life that might affect our business relationship. So maybe they start raising prices that doesn't fit my business model anymore. Maybe because their overhead is too high, so they have to raise prices. Maybe they just get greedy. Maybe they become too busy because they take on so much work that they can't manage their projects properly anymore and that's affecting my business and I have to step away from using them. So that's why I always have one go-to guy and a backup guy, always. So that's why every time I close on a project, wherever I see the weakest link is, where I need to fill that link, I make sure I start getting Karen to start calling and vetting again because I always want to have at least two contractors. Actually, on my last project, I had the plumber come out, but he couldn't get to me for four weeks, and that was too long of a timeline. He's my number one plumber, so I had to go to my number two and say, hey, can you do this job for me? But if I didn't have my number two, then I'm kind of handcuffed. 
I'm either going to take on somebody who's too high of a cost because I'm rushing to find somebody and I just take anybody or I wait four weeks and it costs me money. Either way, it's going to cost you money. Right. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think you have a great system in place. And so are you doing one flip at a time or are you doing a few at a time? And if so, like, how are you making it so that they're not all closing at once? Or is that even something that doesn't matter for you? Well, what's happened is, so I've been two years implementing what I've learned. And in that two years, I've done eight flips. And I've focused mainly on creating the system so that I'm able to scale. Okay. And now I'm getting to the point of where I can scale. So I do have two projects on the go right now, and I'm closing out a third that I've still not finished, but it's almost done. So I closed on one April 3rd, and I closed on another one May 4th, I think. So they're pretty close together. How are you financing them? So the financing now, because when I first started, I was using my partner. And then, again, talking about how things change, things shift. So that relationship shifted a little bit. In my first flip, I used conventional funding. So I used my own money and some conventional funding. So I used my own money for the down payment and conventional funding, so A lenders, in order to finance the project. So that gave me less pressure so that I could take the time to start, you know, to start building my team so that I could take the time I needed in order to vet and find the right people to do the job. So that was great. So thanks, Danielle. Just a question about financing. How did you finance these properties? As you're doing a lot of flips, sometimes you're not always going conventional, but can you tell us how you started and and how you're financing them now? Well, when I started, I used conventional money. And the reason why I used conventional money, you know, getting my loans from CIBC and Scotiabank is because it's cheaper money, right? So when I went down to the States and I did my education down there, they talked a lot about private money, hard money, talking about, you know, private money lenders, angel investors, all of that sort of thing. But I didn't take that route in the beginning because the cost of borrowing is a lot higher. So of course, I was going to use what I can with conventional money because it's cheaper. And I ended up funding the down payment and the rehab. So I used a little bit of my own money I used the bank's money and that afforded me some flexibility and I didn't have any stress in order to have to have the rehab done by a certain time frame. So I did go slow on my first couple of rehabs and the reason for that is because I was wanting to set up my system and build out my business. So what happens a lot of times people get into this and because they know that they need to have the project done by a certain time frame, they're rushing through the project, they're not really vetting out people properly. They're not setting up systems. They're just rushing to get the work done. And then they get to the end of the project and they're like, oh, okay, now I need my next one. But they really haven't built or worked on the business much. They've done all of their time was working in the business. So by doing it the way I did, I was able to start building systems, vetting people, building long-term relationships, like finding people that I want to work with again, building long-term relationships for future flips. And so that's how I started on my first few flips. I also had a partner. So my partner at the time, he was a big key component in order for me to be able to do that. So he helped with the money out of our own pocket. So there was that. But of course, as you go on, and I've picked up a few hold properties that I now have conventional loans. As you go through in your real estate journey, you will end up outgrowing the banks where the banks don't want to lend to you anymore because you're going to blow your TDS. Maybe you've worked your way out of a job. You don't have that income, that T4 income anymore. 
you may not qualify. Of course, using the, the A lender banks, you have to go through the qualifying process and meet all of their criteria. So if they put in your numbers, your income and your expenses, and it just doesn't work for them anymore with their algorithms, and you don't qualify, well, then you have to look at B lenders, which is a higher interest rate or private money. So that's where I'm at now because I'm scaling my business now. I took my time on my first couple of flips so that I could start building some people, some networks, restructuring my portfolio, really hammering out the path that I was going to take, hammered out what market I wanted to focus on, which is why I'm just in Hamilton now. And now that I'm doing multiple projects, I've got three projects out there right now that are active and I just can't use a lender banks anymore. Okay. Thanks very much for giving us some enlightenment on that topic as everybody does it differently. And a lot of people will look at it and say, oh, you know, I might not have the money or I might not have the financing. And I really do believe that there's always a solution. So, yeah. And so I was wondering if you could walk us through your last deal or your latest deal and then just how you found it, what kind of marketing you did, and if you wouldn't mind sharing just some of the financials that go along with it. Yeah, sure. So the last project that I'm just prepping right now for the reno, it's in Hamilton, downtown Hamilton. It was listed for $299. We got it on MLS. I believe my realtor sent it to me. We do get most of our deals on the MLS. We got a couple other marketing strategies, but most of my deals come off of the MLS. So this one was an MLS listing. And there was a problem with this one when you walked in there. It looked to be a structural issue. So the stairs were leaning a little bit to the left. And by having that issue, as soon as you walk in the house, you see the stairs. So that deters a lot of retail buyers. They look at it and they go, oh my God, I don't want this house. There's a problem with this house. It's going to fall apart. And then you got a lot of investors who look for cosmetic flips and that doesn't meet their business model because they're looking at it going, well, I don't want to touch any structure issues. I don't want to take this. It's a higher risk. I'm not going to touch it. And then there's me. So I went in, I put in an offer, locked it up at 280 and with a condition of inspection because I want to bring in my engineer who is one of the guys that I vetted by the way, have a great relationship with him. So now he'll just come on site and do a quick consult for me for a predetermined price that we've talked about. So I called him up, said, hey, look, I got a home inspection booked. Can you come down? I want you to look at something. So the reason why I did that is because I wanted to make sure that this is something that I could address. Not all problems are big problems. They, sometimes we make them up to be a lot bigger than they are. Regardless, there was an issue that needed to be taken care of. That wall that the stairs was on, there's an interior wall. The posts on the bottom going into the basement had been removed, and so there was no support on that wall, so it started dipping a little bit. So for us, it's an easy fix. We just need to resupport that wall, and so I had no problems with that. So after I got the home inspection done, I'm about to be homeowners, and I said, look, you know, there's, we've identified there's a structural issue here. In order for me to get a fix, it was going to cost me money. We renegotiated and I closed at 265. So it was listed at 299 and I renegotiated down to 265. Now, when I ran the ARV in that area, and ARV is an acronym for the after repair value. So we went to MLS. We took the highest selling comp in that area and compared it to what my products will look like at the end. We got an ARV of about $440,000. Wow. So I'm going to put in about $55,000. So I bought it for two sixty-five. I'm going to put it in for, I'm going to put in about $55,000 worth of work and I'm going to sell it for four forty. 
So that's what the numbers look like. Now, it looks really sexy because people don't, you know, when you talk about numbers, here's the hidden cost that people don't look at. There's the cost of selling. So on the back end, I'm probably going to lose about $30,000 off profit. It's not profit. It's the cost of doing business. The realtor commissions, the lawyer fees, the professional fees, all the transfer and all of that. Like we're looking at about $30,000 to sell the property. It's anywhere from 25 to 30. It's typically what I look at. And then there's a holding cost for the time that from close to close. So from acquisition, when we purchase the price, the property to disposition, when we actually close and sell. So the payday on the back end. What people don't understand or what they maybe don't realize because nobody tells you this is when you're flipping houses, from the time you close when you purchase the property, there is a continual output of money until you close on the sale. All you're doing is you're putting money out, putting money out, so there's a deposit on the purchase, then there's the down payment, and then you're borrowing money for the rehab. There's holding costs. You gotta pay off your contractors. There's money out, money out, money out, money out. And then you're done the rehab. You got to pay to clean it. You got to pay to stage it. Then you got to pay to hold it while it's sitting empty and done because it's on the market. Then you got to pay to continue to hold it until somebody else actually buys it. So it's money out, money out, money out until you actually close on the back end. So this is where I think a lot of people get into trouble because they don't really look at it that way. So and then when you sell, there's all your closing costs and stuff. But then you get all that money back. You get the purchase price back. You get your down payment back. You get your rehab back. And then your profit. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you mentioned this because HGTV shows, as an example, they don't actually go through holding costs or even selling costs. Mm -hmm. And I think it we just sometimes get this misconception of what the, the flip really is because like you said and I'm doing one right now currently in Brantford there is all those costs that you have to factor in and yeah there's a lot more other costs like even the utility costs right you're paying those throughout yep. <laughs> and, that's right and there's nothing coming in right so I think you yep. just you know guys you know if you're listening to this and this is your first flip just keep in mind that there's just so many more costs it's just not just the purchase price plus your repairs etc. Like there is a lot of like other costs that you may not even be aware of. So it's important to do your due diligence on that. The one thing I want to mention that I didn't mention, I had a thought and I was in the middle of talking and I didn't come back to it. But one other thing, one other cost. So there's the cost of selling the disposition on the back end. So there's 30 grand, but there's also the cost of borrowing. So the cost of borrowing for me is anywhere 15 to 20 grand when I'm dealing with private money on a six to nine month loan. So you're looking at another additional 15 to 20 grand. So I'm at, you know, we're anywhere from 45 to $50,000 right off the top. That's gone when I sell. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, and it's important to factor that in too, because here's the thing. I mean, at some point, like, yes, you can finance it yourself, but if you finance it yourself, there's going to be a lot of other downsides to that. Danielle, like do you, so obviously with private money, there are some upsides, even though it's, you know, 15 plus percent. Like what are some of those upsides? Well, the upside is, well, there's a couple of things actually. Probably the biggest upside is motivation. <laughs> because when I was funding the project myself, I was taking way too long in the project and using that as a, well, I'm busy doing this and I'm busy doing that and I'm building the business and I'm building systems. And yes, we can justify everything and do that make logical sense. Absolutely. But because I was funding it myself, I was way too comfortable. 
So when you're using other people's money and you have a timeline, let me tell you something, you start moving. So there's that. Using other people's money gives you motivation to do the flips a lot quicker. That's number one. Number two, using other people's money means you can scale. So because I was using my own money in the, in the beginning, what happens is I'm, I have limited, everybody has a limit to what they can do personally. You know, I could do one or two on my own. Maybe somebody else might be able to do three or four, but everybody gets to a limit where they've expended what they can personally. And then, you know, that's as far as you can go. Right. And so for myself, you know, I was doing one at a time and I wasn't willing to go any deeper than that. And, and so I took way longer and I was just limiting to what I could do. So by using other people's money, now that's freeing me up to be able to do multiple and scale my business. So instead of doing one flip at a time, now we're doing two. I've got three projects on the go. So, you know, I wouldn't be able to do that unless I was using other people's money. So that is a definite benefit. The motivation, though, is probably more valuable to me. Having that deadline, that timeline that I have to meet, that motivation is probably more valuable to me than anything else. Very well said. So. Danielle, if you had one biggest piece of advice for investors looking at getting into flipping, what would that be? Just one? Okay. Gosh, what is more important than anything? Okay. You know what? Run your numbers three times. At the end of the day, if you're just starting, and this is a piece of advice for somebody just starting, I would tell you to run your numbers three times and have it double checked by somebody who's done it before. Get a second opinion. Because the number one thing that people do when they get that, the number one, I've talked to a lot of investors between, you know, just traveling around in networking circles and speaking and people reaching out to me for advice. I've talked to a lot of new investors and probably the biggest mistake that people make is they don't run their numbers properly. Because when you start out as a new investor, you have an emotional component that you've not yet taken hold of. And so what happens is you see a property that has potential and then you run the numbers and they don't quite make sense. Not quite, but there's, you could maybe make a deal out of it. So what happens is then you're going to fudge the numbers a little bit in order to make it work because you get super excited. And what happens is let's say, let's take my example. Okay. I bought it for 265. I'm putting 55 in. So where are we at? We're at 320 and I'm going to sell it for 440. Let's say I'm off by 20 grand, not a lot, 20 grand on either end. I'm off on the ARV. So instead of 440, it's 420. And I'm off by 20 grand on the rehab. Instead of 55, it's 75, which by the way, happens quite easily. Yes. Like really easily. People don't understand. They go, oh, it's 20 grand. I would be off by that much. Yeah, you will. It's very easy. So let's say I'm off by 20 grand on either end. If you run the numbers, then it doesn't make sense. You'll be lucky to break even if you make any money at all. And so, and that's how easily you can lose money in real estate, even with the numbers that I have. Because if I go over on the timeline, if I have a project that I thought was 55,000, that's now 75,000, that means it's a bigger project going to take longer. So now I've blown my timeline. So now I got to pay my private money lender or more penalty fees or whatever for taking longer. There's all kinds of different things that kick into place and your stress level is going to go up. Your emotion goes up, your intelligence goes down and you make really bad decisions. So at the end of the day, you really need to know your numbers, know your numbers. And in order for you to know your numbers, you got to know your market. So do some homework, understand everything, be conservative in the beginning, 
because that's how, and it's okay. It's okay to be conservative and wait for that deal. You know, if too conservative, then that's the deal for you in the beginning because you're going to need longer time because you don't have the people in place. You need longer time to get those people in place, to vet them. You need to run the numbers. You need time to go shopping and get, you know, the laminate flooring that's cheaper. Instead of getting $4 laminate flooring, you're going to get the buck $50, the $1.50 laminate flooring. Like you need time in order to do all that. Like I put in a lot of time vetting for people, vetting for supplies and materials. It takes time. So your first rehab is not going to be as quick as my, like I, I would not have been able to do a rehab two years ago as quickly as I can today. I just couldn't. There's no way. I didn't know enough. And so as you get better, then you can tighten up on your numbers a little bit because you know you can because you can get it done a lot quicker, right? You know your numbers because you bought products and materials before. You just don't know in the beginning, so you have to be conservative. The other thing is, too, I want to mention, a lot of people say to me, well, I got this great deal and I keep going to all these private money investors and nobody wants to lend to me. If they're not lending to you, it's not a good deal. Guys, I'm telling you right now, Private money lenders, presenting the package, your deal to a private money lender, that is your thing. If somebody's willing to lend to you, then it's a good deal. But if they're not lending to you, it's not a good deal. Because at the end of the day, me as a private money lender, I won't lend on a deal where there's not enough money. If it's too lean, I won't touch it. And so if they're looking at you saying, no, sorry, it doesn't work for us, ask them why. Because now you have an opportunity to learn. Where did I go wrong? How did I not run the numbers right? Because if a lender doesn't like it, you shouldn't like it either. Yeah. Especially if this is a lender. Now, I'm talking about lenders who have done this before, who are experienced. Don't go to your father or your mother, your sister, your brother. Like, I'm talking about a real estate experienced real estate lender. You go to them, run the deal by them, ask them if they want to do it with you. And if they're saying no, ask why. You're going to learn where you went wrong. And nine times out of ten, because it's an emotional decision, you got excited. You ended up bending the numbers to make it work so that you could make it work for yourself and say yes. Trust your gut. If it doesn't make sense in the beginning, do not bend the numbers. If you're into real estate investing, you are an investor and you look at numbers. That's it. You look at numbers. The numbers have to make sense. Absolutely. So guys, you heard it from Danielle, run your numbers over and over and over and don't bend them. And then the other thing I will say on that is, have another exit strategy in case you can't sell it. So potentially, Always. could you hold it? Could you rent it? Could you still cash flow? So don't go in thinking that it's going to be a flip and you're going to sell it and that's it because if the numbers don't work out, unfortunately, and you can't sell it and you're going to lose money, well, it might be in your best interest to keep it and to rent it at that point in time. So always look at the different exit strategies that you might have at the end of the project. Absolutely. That's great advice, Sarah, 100%. So let's move on to our lightning round questions. So Danielle, I'm going to ask you a series of five questions and just give me the first answer that comes to mind. Ready? Okay, let's go. All right. So question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever? <laughs> hmm, my favorite real estate investing book. Well, I read more business books and mindset books than I do about real estate investing. They say when you take a seminar when you do a conference where did I hear this I didn't double check this but I heard this actually in a conference room two hours in a conference room is the equivalent of reading a book that's what I heard so those are the books that I read because as you know Sarah I spend a lot of time in conference rooms in fact this month this past weekend Mother's Day was my first 
day off on the weekend in four weeks, like four weekends. So for the last four weekends, I've been in conference rooms. And that's where I get the bulk of my knowledge. So that helps me stay in touch with what's going on in my local market. It what lets me know what's going on in the global market because I'm always dealing with current affairs. And a lot of times it's business related and a lot of times it's real estate related. So I also did one three weeks ago, which was mindset related because you need to have the right mindset. So do I have a favorite real estate investing book? I probably read most of my books in conference rooms. What got me started, I will tell you, is The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, which is a business book. It's how to start a business and build it around systems using the McDonald's model, which is to set up systems around everything that needs to be done. So every employee should have a manual on what they should do and how they should do it. And that way you get consistent results because consistent execution is done. So I'd have to say that's probably my favorite book. I have personal attachment to it as well. My very first job when I was 16 was McDonald's and it probably was the best experience as a J-O-B just because of the system. The training was amazing and the systems were amazing. It was very clear. So I do believe in the model, which is why I build my business. Like you said, Sarah, I have a lot of systems around my business. That's why. It definitely is a great book. I've read it as well. I've read the revisited version and it's really insightful about how to work on your business rather than in your business. So thanks for sharing that. That's right. So question number two, Danielle, what's your favorite podcast? Favorite podcast? Well, I love TED Talk. Again, around business, a lot around mindset. I don't have any one podcast that I subscribe to that I absolutely love and I'm dedicated to. I kind of like stealing ideas from different people, which is probably why I don't stick to any one system. I like to kind of venture around and see what everybody else is doing and then apply a little bit from everybody's business models to make my own, to fit it into what works for me. And so the same thing goes for podcasts. Like I don't, this is just my own personal opinion, but I find if you stick to one podcast, then you're stuck in one way of thinking typically because, you know, birds of a feather flock together. So even though like yourself, Sarah, you may have different people on, we all tend to have the same mindset. And so what happens is you tend to have the same kind of, I guess, business ideas. So I like to kind of sniff around everywhere and kind of learn different strategies. So, you know, that's why I do, I kind of, I do a lot of motivational videos too on mindset. I like doing that first thing in the morning when I get up, but I actually don't have a podcast that I'm like a diehard on, but I'm like that with TV too. I don't know. Maybe I get bored easy (laughs) to spice it up. (laughs) Yeah, nothing wrong with that. So question number three, uh, what is your favorite pastime? So what do you do for fun when you're not doing anything real estate related? I do a lot real estate related, (laughs) so I'm not sure uh, what's my favorite pastime. I enjoy traveling. I really enjoy traveling, going to new places. But if I travel and I get disconnected and I can't do real estate while I'm away, I'm absolutely miserable. So I hated Cuba because I didn't have internet. I was just miserable for a week in Cuba. I don't like to fully disconnect from real estate. One of the things I like doing, I do like to travel, but I do work when I'm traveling. And I also, I really enjoy actually taking my dogs out and taking them to the dog park. So I will take half an hour, 45 minutes and just shut down and just throw the ball for my dogs. And that actually 
really grounds me. I enjoy going for high, I enjoy hiking. I'm actually doing Kilimanjaro in a month. I'm looking forward to that. And, and I do. Okay. So here's my answer. I like doing earthy things. I like kind of reconnecting with nature. That sounds like a lot of fun. I love traveling as well. So you'll have tons of fun. I'm sure hopefully they have Wi-Fi there in Kilimanjaro for you to connect. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm prepared for that. I'm mentally prepared to disconnect for six days for that one. So I'm okay, but that's the rare occasion. Perfect. So number four, if you lost all your money and assets tomorrow, how would you start again? If I lost all of my money and assets tomorrow, how would I start again? Well, if I lost all my money and assets that have no money, so how would I start? First, I'd find a partner. I would present a plan to them and say, look, if you want to be a money partner, this is what I plan to do. Would you like to make money with me? And so obviously you got to sell it to them properly, show them where the value is for them. But then I would bring on a money partner and maybe do go back into real estate doing flips or doing buy and hold, depending on what partners I find, but I would have to use other people's money. So first thing I would do, I would go right back into it because if I lost everything because I did something wrong, so I'd want to learn where I went wrong and then get back to work again, doing it the right way. It does happen, but you know what? When people fail at business, they're better doing it the second time because they know what they did wrong the first time. So, you know, I don't believe in failures. I believe in challenges. So, or mistakes might be a better word. Failure is very critical and judgmental. So if I were to lose everything, it's because I made a mistake or a series of mistakes. Learn from those mistakes, pick up and move on, do it again. I know real estate works. There's money to be made in real estate. And if I fail or if I, you know, something doesn't go right, because I did something wrong. And so uh, I was either not prepared. The key to winning in real estate is being prepared. So you got to foresee any issues that might arise and be ahead of them, be prepared for them. So, but what I do is I would learn from my mistakes, find some money partners, and I would do it all over again. Okay, great advice. And last question of the lightning round. If somebody has $50,000 and they wanna get started, how would you recommend that they spend it? If they got started, how? In flipping specifically? No, it could be anything at all. So if they have $50,000 and they come to you and say, what should I do with this money? What do you think you would want to let them know or recommend to them? Well, I would tell them take some of that money and invest it into themselves in education, 100%, because that negates the risk that you're exposing yourself to. I would tell them to start their own business because if you're going to go into real estate, you need to have a business. You want to put any investments you have in real estate in the business, again, to reduce the personal liability that you carry. So, you know, that would be the first thing I would tell them. You know, people get stuck on, you know, I need business cards and I need a business name and I need, I mean, those are things that you'll get as you progress. But fundamentally, you need an entity to put the real estate in. You need to have some education, some knowledge. I said to you earlier, run your numbers. I can't run your numbers if you don't know how to run them. So get the education you need in order to run those numbers. Find out what numbers you need to have in order to run them. And so the education, invest in yourself. And, you know, get some education. At the end of the day, most people that make mistakes or fail in real estate is because they didn't have the education. They thought they knew and they didn't. They were ignorant. And I say ignorant not as a bad word. I say ignorant as in the actual meaning of it, which means they didn't know. They just didn't know. And you don't know what you don't know. So get the education. Either 
find somebody who's doing it and work with them and have find a mentor hire a coach read some books go to seminars but invest in yourself because you are the business you are the business so if you don't know then what business is going to fail you have to learn right 100 percent so Danielle, if listeners wanted to reach out to you or know more about you, where can they reach out? A couple of places. So I am a coach with Rockstar Real Estate. So you can find my profile there. You can connect with me through the brokerage, which is Rockstar Real Estate Brokerage. And also my flipping company is called Perfect Property. So you can find me online at www.perfectproperty.com. Inc. Inc.com. You can email me at info at perfectpropertyinc.com. Yeah. Oh, you can find me on Facebook, Facebook slash Perfect Property Inc. or Facebook slash Danny Chason is D-A-N-I Chason and connect with me on Facebook. If any of your listeners have any questions or they want to connect with me, Facebook is the best way to do it through Messenger. They can always send me a Facebook message. I answer all my messages personally. So Excellent. Danielle, any last words of advice or anything else that you'd like to let the listeners know about? Do your homework. At the end of the day, do your homework and reach out for help. I think our egos are probably the reason why we make mistakes. uh, And that's because we don't want to look stupid to anybody else. And so we don't reach out for help. And that is probably the stupidest thing you could do. So reach out for help whether it's connecting with somebody like myself, yourself, or someone within your real estate network, but reach out, talk to people. Absolutely. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Danielle, for being on Where Should I Invest? And really, really appreciate the great insight that you were able to share with the audience. I'm honored to be on. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Sarah. Excellent. Well, I'll see you at the next So Right event. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.